Well, thank you. Go ahead and take a seat. And our littlest friends are invited to the kids' table with Miss Olivia and friends. We have a whole bunch of little ones today will be joining us for some, some fun. They're going to be learning about the Bible, too, and um, they'll be joining us, rejoining us back at communion time when we're ready to celebrate the table today. But, um, but welcome. I just want to say hi to everybody. I'm glad that you are here with us um, in person, also online. We have quite a few people that are worshiping with us online, whether in this moment or in the days ahead, too. Um, whether you're working or have other plans or things, it's great to have that technology to do that. And um, I don't know about you, but here in central Pennsylvania, the weather seems to be kind of like confused. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I don't know if you've had your heat on and your air conditioning on in like less than 24 hours, um, or maybe you're just roughing it and, you know, determined not to, but, um, but yeah, just, just crazy stuff. But, um, but there's lo- also lots of good stuff. Um, uh, we, we're starting this series, we started this series last week about the Bible, um, this, this sermon series, which is really great. And um, just to report, this past week we started a couple of classes that are going on during the week. And, and I, this is actually really mind-blowing for me as a pastor. Um, we had like over 30 people, 30 adults join us for the How to Study the Bible class. And we have a couple more that are going to be joining this week. Um, so that's still open to you, by the way, if you're still like, eh, maybe I can join the last two weeks. But we had like a full house for that and just great discussion, great, great time there. But then also like about like 10 children joined for the, um, the Baking Through the Bible class and they made bread. They talked about all kinds of really great stuff. So we're celebrating the growth of like some, some Christian education classes and, and whatnot. It's great to see so many people that are encouraged and wanting to grow in their faith. Um, so like I said, this week we're um, in our second week of this series about the Bible. And um, we talked about how it's a, it's a very powerful book. Um, one of the biggest treasures, I believe, what, that we have as Christians um, and, and, but what's interesting too is that for the first 300 years of Christianity, so think like zero to 300 AD, there was no Bible. There was no Bible. That, that people gathered in little churches, ecclesia, basically in people's living rooms and marketplaces, under persecution, by the way, which is even the crazy part of it, and they told the stories of Jesus. They maybe sang a psalm or, or had a word of encouragement in a time of prayer, but they told the stories of Jesus. Um, and, and in our class, we talked about how it wasn't really until the fourth century that the New Testament scriptures actually came together in a document form and called it like this process of canonization, determining what books should be in the Bible and what shouldn't. Um, and they recognize the books. But what's also interesting, too, is that it wasn't until the 1500s that the Bible is actually available to everyone, meaning that you could have a physical Bible, Gutenberg invented the printing press, you could have a physical Bible that you can read on your own, not have somebody else interpret it for you, tell you what's in it, but that you could read it on your own. And, and I'm just, I don't know about you, I'm so very thankful for that, that we can read and study the Bible, we can study scriptures on your own. You don't have to worry about what somebody else is saying or is that true or not, you can read it for yourself. And the Bible really, I believe, has power to change lives. It, it gives us meaning and purpose and hope and really connects us to God, learns to learn about God, who God is, but also to one another. And I would say, dare to say that many of us in this room and, and online have experienced that, especially while reading scripture, maybe through the years, or maybe you've just started and you're experiencing that. Um, but did you know there's statistics too, 
outside of just like kind of the, the feel good or being encouraged and kind of motivation side. But there are statistics that show that reading the Bible is actually good for you. Like, good, like physically, like physically, mentally, emotionally. Um, there was a study that was done by a non-religious um, group that discovered they surveyed people um, before and after reading all sorts of documents and whatnot. And they found that after reading the Bible for a period of six months on a, on a regular, semi-regular basis, like about five times a week, um, people scored 14 to 19 points higher on the scale of having peace, being hopeful about their circumstances, actually even in a mental health sense, that there was improvement because people had been reading scripture. It doesn't mean don't take your meds, but it also means that, hey, this can, this can be a secondary part of, of that too, that scripture speaks to us, helps us. But we also know that looking at history, we can also look at history and see that sometimes though the Bible hasn't been used in all the good places, in all the good ways. That the Bible is also justified and given power to lots and lots of bad things, justified lots of what I call isms and fears. Um, how the Bible's been interpreted over the course of history has caused a lot of harm to people too. Not just, not just physical harm, death, but, but also people who have been ostracized or put out. And so um, basically that's why I think this series is so important for us. It's so important to look at the Bible, not only what it is, but kind of that overarching goal of understanding and interpreting it for ourselves, for ourselves and together as a community. So to do so, um, today we're going to start looking at a couple of passages. Over the next couple of weeks we're going to do so, but today we're going to look at some passages that may be hard to understand in the Bible, that often go misunderstood or misinterpreted. Um, and we're going to see how, how there's more to the story than maybe you thought. I don't know if you've ever read the Bible and been confused by it. Well, we're going to dive into a confusing part of that today. But today's question how do we interpret the Bible? Last week's was, uh, do we interpret the Bible literally? Do we read the Bible literally? Well, this week is, how do we interpret the Bible? Um, and I think it's really important to note, before we kind of get into some tools and ways of interpretation, um, it's important to note that regardless of who you are, where you're from, what your background is, we are all interpreters, we're all interpreters. Whether you know one language or 17, we're all interpreters. That we, no matter where you go, you bring you with you. <laughs> we bring us with us. I mean, just for example, if um, you see these lights while you're driving down the road in your rearview mirror, what goes on inside of you, right? Ah! Well, you look at the speedometer, you look at what, what you know, you look at all sorts of things. You're interpreting the situation. You say, I must be doing something, there's a cop behind me, I better pull over, I better do this. And then all of a sudden there's that sigh of belief when the guy's chasing somebody that's like in front of you, right? <laughs> yes. But you interpreted the situation. In that moment you interpreted the situation. Or what if this happens? She looking at me. She looking at me, right? What's wrong? What did I do? What did I say? What, did, what, did prompt, what prompted her scowl or face? Could it be that she just got a whiff of something not so pleasant in the room? 
Could it be that she has a thought about what's going to happen after school when she picks the kids up and there's a situation that's going on? Could it be that it has nothing at all to do with you? You know, think about that. We're all interpreting. Or maybe you line up and see this. I don't know if anybody went to the, there was like the, the, um, the record day yesterday. I don't know if you know about this, but it was like, there's like a couple days a year when people like line up to get LPs, like the like hard record. They're back. Everything's back. Well, maybe this is a line you encountered. A friend of mine did that yesterday and kind of a long, long line. But when you see the line, what's, what do you, what do you make of the situation? It's either they don't have their act together behind the counter or the food's really good, Right? Could be one of the two. <laughs> Which one is it? What are you going to interpret the situation from? So we're all interpreters in some way, and that's also when it comes to the Bible. Um, and and coming, when we come to the Bible, there's a name for that interpretation. Um, and some of you guys are going to really geek out over this. Um, I'm going to give you some words and definitions that we're going to run as kind of an undercurrent in this series. But first, it's a big churchy word. You don't have to know it. You'll never probably use it again, but it'll prove helpful. If you study the Bible, it's called hermeneutics. Hermeneutics, Yes. And we have a family here in the church. The last name is Herman. It has nothing to do with them. Do not worry. They're sitting in the back, but do not look at them either. But um, it's not like a study of them or like, no, no, no. This is nothing to do with This is a, it's, it's, you know, the church likes to come up with really fancy words for something that's really simple. We tend to use lots of big words. But it basically means the tools and the principles used to interpret Scripture. The tools and the principles used to interpret Scripture. And whether this is like your first time in church ever or like you've been a long time, like you consider yourself like a mature believer, like we all have a toolbox. We all have tools and principles that when we read something, especially in the Bible, that we're interpreting it through. So everybody has a hermeneutic. Y'all got a hermeneutic. You can go home and say that. I got a hermeneutic, right? Confused some people today. But we all have a hermeneutic because we're all interpreting but what I want to do is give you five simple tools that you can use, five simple hermeneutics that you can use to read the Bible that Christians really overall in the church tend to use when we read Scripture. Um, and there are five tools that are really important and helpful to use when you run up against a Bible passage and you're unsure what it means, or it's confusing, or it's uncertain, or that kind of thing. And we're going we're gonna to use these in just a couple minutes. But, so five of these. So the first is the context of the passage. First is the context. Uh, this is really, really important. So what comes before and after a passage, where it is, who's saying it, what the situation is that's going on, what book of the Bible it's in and what makes that important. I mean, because you and I would definitely say, like, context matters, right? I mean, for instance, like, you find a slice of pizza, it makes a difference whether it is on the street or it's on a plate. Context matters. I don't know, three-second rule, five-minute rule, whatever you want to do, but context matters. Where you find something is super important, and it lends to what you do with it. Um, and maybe you've seen this kind of, this meme that's floated around the internet before, this, um, this quote, this scripture, um, and he said unto him, all these things I will give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. And that's from the Bible, right? Who's saying it, though? Not Jesus, Satan, right? So you might quote this as your life verse, and I would kind of question that, you know. <laughs> like, you have to look at the context. 
You can't just take a verse, you know, like I said, we all have like things, I like this, I like Philippians 4.13, I like, like, yeah, they might give you encouragement, and, and I think I would dare to say, like, it's okay to have those things, but the bigger thing, you better look at the context, or it might end up like Satan, right? But you better, but that's where context is just so important. Read the Bible in context. Read a passage in context. Read a verse in context. But then the second thing is the historical situation. What's the historical situation? It's a very different one than than 21st century living in New Cumberland, Pennsylvania. Very, very different. And it's important to consider that, that what was going on at the time that it was written. What were customs that were present? What were expectations? In our uh, Lenten sermon series, we even talked about, we talked about women in that and how women were regarded as ways like property, like very different than a situation that's here. So you have to see what prompted the writing of this passage or this letter. What was the historical situation going on at the time? Another important thing is what else does the Bible say? What else does the Bible say? So not just focus in on maybe that passage or even in the book of the Bible that that is, but overall, what does Scripture say about this topic or this situation? If you run across a weird passage, look at what else the Bible says about the same thing. It's often called the hermeneutic of continuity. So basically that there's a continuity that goes throughout Scripture, the whole piece of Scripture. Um, But then number four, don't check your brain at the door. Common sense, common sense meaning. It's okay to use your brain. Go for the simple rather than the, compli- the complicated. You know, I like to say, if, if you hear hoofbeats, assume horses, not zebras. Maybe you've heard that saying before when it comes to like your health or whatever. But same thing with the Bible. Assume horses, not zebras. Don't overcomplicate. Think about what, what is the, kind of the simplest interpretation or simple meaning here. But then last but not least, is the literary style and intent. See, not everything in the Bible is meant to be read the same way. Just as if you would enter a library, you know, you would read a magazine, you know, talking about like the, not just on your phone, but you're reading a magazine a lot different than you would a newspaper, than you would a a, a fiction book or a book of poetry. That not everything in the Bible is meant to be read the same way. And the Bible contains all sorts of different kinds of writings, everything from letters to codes of law to narratives to poetry to what's called apocalyptic literature that, you know, kind of like the sci-fi of 2,000 years ago, you know, all those things. And so it's important to consider that as well. And so when you take these five tools, these hermeneutics together, all of them help us to understand what is going on in the text, what's going on. So kind of put this together. Today we're going to look at a weird text. We're going to use these tools together. Something that, it's something that Jesus preached, by the way, um, but I file in the category of things we pretend that Jesus didn't say. There's quite a few of them. It's a large file if you keep track of that. You know, we love when Jesus says, like, to love people, right? But there's a lot to say that Jesus says that's really challenging. Can I rub you in a weird way? And so I'm going to read it to you. We're going to start off with one verse, because that's often like a good place to start. Start off with one verse, and then we're going to expand that and use the tools of interpretation that I just mentioned to kind of put it into place. So the, the verse of the passage comes from Luke chapter 14, verse 26. And it's printed in your worship guides if you want to follow along with that. It'll be, also be on the screen here. So this is... Well, I'm not even going to tell you who's saying it. If anyone comes to me 
and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. It's a quote. You know, so just a note, most churches do not preach this on Mother's Day. Um, you never quite hear this on Mother's Day, but, but it's weird. So the first thing to know is that who is saying this? Jesus. Jesus, I'll give you that hint. So, but it's weird because here is kind and loving Jesus saying, look, if you want to be my disciple, then follow some Taylor Swift and be a hater, right? Because hater's going to do what? Hater's going to hate, right? Be a hater. Hate mom, hate dad, hate the whole family. Just hate them all, right? Hate everybody. And probably some of you guys are like, you know, I wouldn't mind hating a few of them, but all of them, right? Like not all of them together, right? And Jesus is like, yep, all of them, all of them. And you can understand why we would gloss this over. When we gloss it over, over, file it, forget it, right? Put it out of place. Or say, oh, that was kind of an ancient writing at the time and we don't have to follow that anymore or that kind of thing. But it's important that when we read this to ask, what in the world does Jesus mean? <laughs> what in the world does Jesus mean? You know, some people would dismiss it. Others would take it literally and start actually hating people, right? Uh, you know, you don't get along with mama at the next family reunion. Jesus said what? Hate her, right? Just follow Jesus' directions. But I would say neither are good options here. Instead, when you run up against something like this, it's the perfect time to use your brain and to use these tools. So first, start with the context. What's going on? Start with what is the context here? So what's going on in Jesus' life and ministry that this passage fits into in the Gospel of Luke? It's important to know it's, this is in the gospel of Luke. We have to zoom out, big picture. What's going on before and after? And, and let me just say, a lot of people don't do this. You know, what they do is pick a verse or two out of the Bible that justifies something that they agree with or they're interested in. Uh, last week, we taught you a word for that. It's called proof texting. Pastors are often really bad at doing this too. But it's, it's without any thought of what comes before or after. And it's just like, you know, I want a principle, therefore I'm going to have these five verses that point to it, that kind of thing. But, but we have to look at where this passage is found. The Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke. If you do some research, if you do some study, you find that as a whole, big picture, the Gospel of Luke really has three phases of Jesus' ministry. The first, and this is from Luke chapter 3 until about chapter 9. So um, we see that everything's going great. Hunky-dory, right? Jesus has recruited disciples. It's the beginning of his ministry in Galilee. Uh, then there's a second phase that starts and kind of towards the end of chapter 9. That goes all the way to 23. It's the journey to Jerusalem and the cross. And then there's a third phase of resurrection and hope. The story of Easter, when the tomb is empty and Jesus is alive and he meets people and talks to people. There's three phases of Jesus' ministry in the gospel as a whole. So when we consider that this, you know, phase one, thousands are following, people are loving him, it's fun, there's miracles, there's fish being multiplied, everybody eats. Something, though, happens in Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, there's a distinct turn. See, Jesus in Luke 9 is starting towards Jerusalem and the cross, and he starts teaching in a very different way. And the turning point is actually found in verses 51 to 53, where Luke tells us, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. 
And he sent messengers on ahead to went, to went to a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the mood, the attitude, kind of the, the, everything kind of lowers, the honeymoon is over. <laughs> it's a turning point when Jesus is starting to think about and talk about his death. So something changed. Jesus gets weird in phase two. Jesus gets really weird. He's heading to Jerusalem. He knows it's going to be a hard road. He knows there's going to be challenge, hardship, pain, and sacrifice. And so what he wants to start doing is to prepare these crowds who are following him, to prepare them to understand what's ahead is not going to be an easy path. Following Jesus is not going to be easy. And so that's where it's so important to understand where this passage comes in because it's in that section, phase two, where the passage comes in about hating mom and dad and whatnot, right? So what I want to do, though, now is even in a different context, right? We just looked at in the bigger picture of what Luke is about, that this is the hard road, that Jesus is starting hard teaching. But I want to read the entire thing, what comes before and after. And I want you to listen to it and imagine that you're there, that Jesus is preaching to you. So Luke, if we back up to verse 25, Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Wouldn't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation, not able to finish it, anyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he'll send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, Those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. So think about this. This is a bigger story that's going on. Jesus goes into story mode. After he says, you know, hate your father and mother, wife and children, he goes into story mode. And there's a reason for that. What we discover here is that Jesus, what he's doing, there's a crowd here. He's preaching a little sermon. He's preaching a little sermon. And the part about hating is his sermon opener. It's a sermon opener. And I know a bit about this. You know, they teach you classes in seminary, but you know, how to preach, how to structure sermons. Um, a sermon opener, the beginning of a sermon, is really meant to wake people up. <laughs> it's meant to wake people up. Sometimes you propose a question or an idea. Sometimes it's a story. It's meant to wake people up, and it's, apparently it's been happening since the times of Jesus. So he's trying to say something interesting something shocking, something surprising. Jesus fits that bill here. But then, besides the context, what else does the Bible say? What else does the Bible say? If we look elsewhere, of course, you and I know that we see so many times Jesus is telling people, you're supposed to love your enemies, you're supposed to wash each other's feet, right? Honor your parents, like there's passages that talk about this. Um, Jesus, even at the cross, he shows his great love for his mother, that he calls on John, the apostle John, to take care of her when he knows that he is going to die. Think about that. Like he's showing love to his mom. So where does this come in? Well, if you look at the word hate 
It's a little Greek word, missio. That's the language that this was written in. Um, it's the same word if you look at other parts in Scripture where Jesus is talking about how you're, you want to hate your enemies, but you should love them. It's the same word that's used there. It's also the same word that Jesus predicts for his disciples, saying others are going to missio you. They're going to hate you. It's the same word. You know, some people would say, well, it just means love less, right? Well, I don't think Jesus is saying like, well, it's just because you better be, you know, they're going to love you less. No, they're going to kill you, right? <laughs> they're going to kill you. They hate you. So that, you kind of watch those. What, what else does the Bible say about that? But then you add in common sense to the figure. You know, we know that Jesus wouldn't ask us to hate everybody that other places he's telling us to love. It does not make sense. If you can understand what Jesus is doing is that he's making a point in a very provocative way. You know, the point is this, that Jesus, he's extending this. He's saying, following me is easy right now, but it's going to the change. You know, think about what it would take, like, to hate someone that you're close to. Like, something like, oh, that gut-wrenching, horrible feeling. Like, there's something that's going to change here. It's going to be very, very difficult. And then you look at the history. You look at the historical context, what it's written in. You know, think about it. 2,000 years ago, what would be your most valuable possession in your life? Your family. That was what you had. 2,000 years ago, your most valuable possession was your family. And then we see those two stories that he tells, these two parables. And what are they about? Possessions, but they're also about calculating cost. The cost. You only do it after understanding the cost. You only build after understanding the cost. You only go to war after understanding the cost. That Jesus is saying, it's going to cost you something very valuable to follow me. You know, and so suddenly a weird story starts to make just a little bit more sense. You know, it's just like, the, you know, this year the baseball season has just started. And, um, you know, let me tell you something about what it means to be a Harrisburg Senators fan, right? Opening day, hurrah. We had some people that, here that were able to attend that and be a part of that, and it's, you know, all wonderful, and they lost. But that's okay. We're going to the championship this year, right? But then we realize we're in phase one. It's going to enter phase two very shortly, even though we have six wins and seven losses. And the road is not going to be easy or fun come July. I'm trying to be optimistic here, but really not. But the road isn't going to be easy and fun. There will be a time it's going to be hard to be a fan. It's going to be hard to sit in those seats. There'll be a time when you will want to give up the free tickets that you just received. You know, a few weeks ago, we talked about what it means to be fair weather fans. But that really, that question comes back, will you stick it out when it gets hard? You know, Jesus, and there's a parallel here. He's saying the exact same thing when it comes to following him. When it comes to being a part of this community called the church. He's saying, I know things are good right now. I know life feels on the up and up. You might be on even cloud nine. You're getting all your promises fulfilled. But he's letting them know that following him is not going to be easy. And that comes not just with the struggle of faith, personal faith, but also with church, with God's action in our lives, it's not always going to be fun. There's going to be hardships. There's going to be things that you have no idea and that you don't understand. 
There's going to be people, right? There's going to be people that don't understand you. Like, first off, like, why would you waste an hour on Sunday morning, like, in a building here singing songs and listening to somebody talk about an ancient document? Like, it doesn't make sense, right? People would, might not understand. It might cost you. You know, that we may have to give up valuable things, our time, money, things we want to do, our behavior towards others. But Jesus is saying, I want you to stick with me. Stick with me. And so suddenly, this passage, when you use those tools, it becomes not just relevant, but also true. It begins to speak to you. The thing that you're holding on to, the thing that's maybe getting in the way of your relationship with Jesus, the thing that wants to make you say, ah, it's getting too hard or it's inconvenient and I just want to walk away. But I can say this, that in my own life, good things have only come in my life when I was willing to give up the things that I was holding on to very tightly. And I think that's what Jesus is doing, is challenging us. You know, the Bible overall is, yes, a source of encouragement and hope. We can see the story of Jesus. We can see the resurrection and the promise it gives. But there's also a point that the Bible challenges us. It should. Jesus is letting us know there is a cost. There is a cost to every good thing. Are you willing? It's a good question to ask ourselves. You know, maybe, you, maybe you're in a season that you're feeling God's presence, but you need to know that you're not always going to feel that way. Uh, maybe you're in a season of doubt and questions and uncertainty. Maybe up against something hard personally or even as a family. Um, maybe it may feel more like sacrifice than joy, but you're not alone in that. You're just in part phase two of the journey. You know, knowing the rest of the story, we also know that this season, whatever it is that you're in, is not the final one either. The cross wasn't the end. God leads us to a better place in the long road. And so that's all to say, digging in is hard, but it's worth it. And I think so is following Jesus, and so is reading Scripture, reading the Bible. That it's hard. There's times you scratch your head, you want to put it down, you want to dismiss it, you want to walk away. So same thing with Jesus, right? There's times you scratch your head, you look at it, you want to walk away. But the story that we looked at today is not as weird as we thought. Because it starts speaking to us. You know, to hate mom or dad or spouse or sibling, Jesus is, that's his way of, of emphasizing in a provocative way of saying, yes, I'm going to question the things that are most valuable to you. Fill in the blank for what that might be for you. I'm going to question the things that are most valuable, you think are most valuable to you. And that may mean giving up or denying yourself of something you want right now. But the new life, Jesus promises, is so much worth it. He meant it then, he means it now. And that when we're facing the challenges and difficulty in our faith, in life, even as church or being in community with one another, we recognize that that too is not only worth it, but it's part of the journey.